0: Well, let's dive into the message in Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we are teaching, preaching through the book of Ephesians, and to get us where we're going here today, let me just ask you, how many of you remember road trips back then versus now? Yeah, okay, so like if you're you're in ninth or 10th or 11th grade high school, you don't remember road trips back then, because back then, Um, I remember road trips when you didn't have tablets. I mean, okay, entertainment on road trips now looks like full, like, entertainment system, you know, drop-down screen. You have your tablets. You can just hand a tablet to your kid, and, it like, they're they're locked in on it. Um, Entertainment back then looked like annoying your siblings. Anybody remember the imaginary line down the center of the seat? And it was like, you crossed that line. And then, like, little sister, he touched me. Yeah, that was how we entertained ourselves. I grew up traveling about half of the year. My parents had a ministry, and we traveled half the year. And for a lot of those years, we were in a orange Volkswagen van. And my brother and I were hanging out in the back. No AC. In fact, when we complained, AC was literally a squirt bottle. They would hand a squirt bottle back and go, here you go. And that was your, your AC. Uh, and I remember one night, we're driving through Southern California. I don't know. I'm seven, eight years old. And I'm just picking on my brother. I'm sitting, like, laying down behind him. You know, there's, in, like, little compa- compartment when you didn't have to wear seat belts. And uh, so I'm, like, laying down there and just picking on him, like, just poking and picking. And uh, he's a couple years younger than me. And, and finally, I annoyed him enough that, like, he, he just, man... He turns around and just starts pummeling me. And I just remember like laughing and like trying to duck, you know, as he's like pummeling me. I had annoyed him enough that he finally uh, couldn't take it anymore. And I still remember that silly evening (laughs) all those years ago. Now, thankfully, my brother has forgiven me and I've forgiven him, and we have a great relationship. Now, but here's the thing, our tendency when it comes to relationships, especially to our closest relationships, like family relationships, is rather than forgive, to hold on to things and to allow it to turn into bitterness. Eventually, when we hold on to things long enough, we we do begin to get bitter. And ultimately, for many, they begin to write relationships off. Now, when it comes to relationships in your life, particularly the closest relationships to you, like family, one of the most destructive things you can tell yourself is, I don't care. Maybe you've said that about a relationship. Now, here's the thing. You may not want to care. They might not even deserve for you to care. You may not think you care. But deep down, there is a place in you that does care, and there's a connection you can't just write off. And while all relationships are important, it seems like your relationship with your father is perhaps the most critical, actually, to future health. I know that's not fair to mom because you moms do so much more usually. But, that, but, that, but it's true, isn't it? In every child, including you and me, uh, there's a place that longs for the approval of his or her parents, but especially his or her father, right? Right? That's why there's guys who spend 10 or 20 years in a profession they hate, trying to earn the approval of a father. Ladies, I bet you remember if your dad complimented you on something, I bet there's one of those compliments that just sticks in your mind. I still remember my little girl. She used to love to dress up in princess dresses when she was maybe two years old. And she would come and go, look, daddy. And she just loved that, that pleasure to love the approval of her father. Also, your relationship with your father is also the most difficult relationship in your life, isn't it? In fact, it's one of the relationships that most tempts you to say, he's a jerk, he wasn't there, I don't care, I'm over it, I'm moving on. Maybe some of you have been in that place or in that place right now. And see, here's the problem in close family relationships, whether that's with a sibling, whether that's with a parent, it is when you try to move on, it's kind of like you have a giant rubber band attached to your back. Have you ever noticed this? And you move on for a while, then all of a sudden, it sucks you back in. It pulls you back in. Um, I, had a, I used to look at those. Uh, they're called endless lap pulls. Some of you probably have them. Uh, they're really cool. It's like a treadmill for swimming, you know, and it has a jet and you just swim in place as long as you want. And, uh, I, I decided I wanted one of those. So I made a redneck version of one. I had a free pool someone had, had given us and, um, we set that up for the kids and I wanted to be able to swim laps. And so I got a a bungee cord and attached it around my waist to the side of the pool. It actually worked pretty well. Good little DIY tip for some of you here, for some of you rednecks here. And, uh, it actually worked, and, and you could swim laps, but then as soon as you stop, what does it always do? It sucks you right back to the wall, right? And relationships have the tendency to do that when it comes to those closest relationships. You might go for years, but later, and oftentimes people find around, somewhere around 40, like somewhere around midlife, it yanks you back into all the emotional turmoil, and it brings back a bunch of junk from your childhood, and you discover, I guess I'm not over it, I guess... I do care. And the truth is this, that if you struggle with bitterness toward a family member, especially towards those closest to you, like your father, it it isn't because you don't care. It's actually because they matter a whole lot to you. In fact, bitterness often grows in proportion to how much you loved the one who wronged you. I mean, some people, like, they cut you off in traffic, and, um, and you, were, you got mad, and you honked, and you gave them a nice wave as a good Christian, and, and then you forgot about it, right? You're not holding on to a bunch of bitterness about it, but it's your sister, it's your brother, it's your ex, it's your father, sometimes even God, feeling disappointed with God. Those are the things you hold on to and that eat away at you, and so... Today, I want to talk especially to those of you who are having a difficult time in some of your closest relationships, a difficult time letting go of hurt, perhaps struggling uh, with bitterness, because there's a fundamental step in healing and beginning to move toward reconciliation and ultimately toward relationship, and that's forgiveness. And today, I want to encourage you. To follow the example of our Savior and begin the process of dealing with bitterness and moving toward forgiveness, because it's not only what Jesus commands us to do; it's also critical to you in order to experience the freedom and the joy that God desires for you. So, if you have your Bibles, like I said, I want you to turn on over Ephesians chapter four. If you don't have them, it's on the screen behind me, and we just a couple weeks ago started the second half of the book of ephesians it's a big a big turn and just to give you the context of what this whole section is about paul begins it by urging us those that are followers of jesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called so the whole first part he sets up by telling us about this amazing Calling that He's chosen you, that He's saved you, that He's brought you from death into life, that He loved you with a love that you can't even comprehend. And but He prays that you would be able to comprehend through the Spirit of God His love. And then He calls you based on that to live a life of grateful response, to walk. It's a journey in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And last week, we see he, he told us, hey, I don't want you to live like people who don't know the one true God in futility of thinking. And in Jewish thinking, we see that the Jewish people understood that the root of all sin comes from idolatry, from placing something other than the one true God as the center of our life and thinking we're going to find meaning, fulfillment from that thing. And so that word futility is used all over the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and it means it's this idea of thinking that true meaning can be found apart from God, maybe in relationships, maybe in achievement, maybe in Possessions and so people tend to place sex as an idol, status or achievement as an idol, or a cum- accumulation of more stuff as an idol in their lives, thinking they're going to find joy and fulfillment from that. And it fails them, it's like a treadmill that just keeps going around and, and it never brings fulfillment. And last week, we talked about anger and conflict in our families, and we discovered that at the root of anger and conflict, that there's something we want in order to fill that need for fulfillment in our lives. And when we don't get what we want, then anger and conflict erupt in our lives. We try to squeeze fulfillment from other people. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week on the verse we left off with. We, this was a, a memory verse or a verse for you to take and ponder, and I hope you did that last week. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where we all left off. It's, here's what Paul said. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And So Paul says, hey, he acknowledges there will be times you're angry, sometimes, perhaps many times, justifiably angry because someone wronged you. But Paul says, hey, be careful, be careful. Don't let it go to sin and get rid of it really quickly because if you don't, it's going to eat away at your soul and it's going to bring destruction to your relationships. And beyond that, it will give Satan a foothold or literally a place to mess with your thoughts and mess with your relationships and drive a wedge between you and others and between God. And man, life is hard enough already. Don't give the enemy a ready-made place in your heart and in your life. Amen? That's what Paul says. So get rid of anger and bitterness quickly. Verse 28, he goes on, and now he moves on to, a, to another area of behavior or Christian character. He says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And so he brings up this idea that, man, some of you, you you used to be thieves. You used to take something that wasn't yours to meet your own needs, to fulfill that thing, to meet your own wants or desires. You would try to take something that wasn't yours. And the root if you think about it, the root behind stealing is all about—is it's—it's all about me, isn't it? It's not about others. It's all about my my meeting what I want or what I need by taking from another what's not mine. And this verse is perhaps one of the most um, blatant descriptions of like what true conversion to Jesus and transformation is in the New Testament. The thief becomes a philanthropist. The one who would take now becomes generous. And instead of me focusing on getting what I want by taking what doesn't belong to me from others, now I become self-supporting, but not just that, supportive. He echoes what, what he talks about in other passages, passages of scriptures, like in First Thessalonians. Paul urged believers, I want you to work with your hands um, so that you can have something extra to share with people who are in need. There's a heart of generosity. There's a motivation. And what is the key motivation to this change, to this transformation? It's about others. I want you to have a shift in your thinking that everything you do isn't just for you and your own consumption. Your goal is to create an abundance, more than you need, so that you can share and be a generous person. One of the books I read in prepping... This message says this, said that Ephesians 4.28 should explode our, our self-centered thinking. That basically the goal of productivity, when you think of like hard work, it's not first personal enjoyment and getting stuff that, that you want. The goal of productivity is so that you could actually give, so that you could do something beyond you. This book said, we do not exist for ourselves. Sounds a lot like a phrase we say pretty often around here. Life is for you, not about you. It's for you, but not about you. As soon as you start getting those mixed up, you're on that treadmill again, trying to find joy and fulfillment in something that will never bring this. And so it's this radical idea of transformation in lives because of Jesus, because of the Spirit of God. Man, this is fully on display in Acts chapter 2 where in the first few weeks of the early church, thousands come in. And there's this beautiful passage that says they had everything um, together. Like they had everything um, in common, and people would come, and they'd sell properties and and meet needs. And it was this beautiful period in, in the early church of just an outpouring of generosity, because of the, what Jesus was doing, as people came to Him. Now, this passage in Acts two, everything in common, has been twisted over millennia or over hundreds of years as a justification for some of the collectivist, utopian government systems such as communism or socialism. And one of the uh, one of the mantras behind that. Was, was this, to each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Now, on the face value, that sounds like a Christian ideal, doesn't it? But here's, here's the difference. The Christian ideal of generosity is always a transformative and voluntary thing. It's a voluntary response. And so, so the scriptures over and over, all the way back to the Ten Commandments, uh, they, the scriptures tell us, no, actually, we honor private property that the things you have belong to you. That's why you don't steal, because we honor private property. And yet, Jesus does this thing in the heart where you, as you have more than you need then, and as you work hard with the right motivation, you share beyond this. And some of these ideologies have twisted things. And and what actually happens is they've created less abundance because it de-incentivizes achievement for people. It takes the heart out of it. It says you have to do this, right? It looks at resources as a closed system, which means if I give you one, I have one less. Here's what you see in kingdom math, in the biblical worldview. It's not a closed system. If I give you one, I know God will provide more. See, the way God has created creation, his beautiful creation is abundance. Let me illustrate it this way. It's thinking of the things in our lives, the things he's given us, as pies versus candles. In a pie system, we talked about your slice of the pie last week, owning your junk, right? Uh, this is a different pie metaphor. I just must like pie or something, which you can probably tell. Um, <laughs> but in a pie metaphor, if I give you one slice, that's one less slice that I have, right? In a candle metaphor, if I, if I take my candle and light your candle... I haven't lost anything. We've just gained more light. And that's thinking about resources in a kingdom perspective. That's a generosity perspective towards what you own. Have you ever planted a garden? Some of you, you got a garden going right now. Some of you are like, Yes, would you like some zucchini? Because you know when you plant, God has built abundance into the system, hasn't it? All it takes is you planting some seeds and watering it, and all of a sudden this abundance grows. And and Paul says, I want you to have this kind of frame of thinking about life. That you do what you do, not just for you, but for the benefit of those around you. When everyone works hard and has a heart of generosity, man, everybody in the community does better. Everybody thrives. See, originally, free market systems have been based on this ideal, but here's the thing. They break down whenever greed enters in. That's why earlier Paul says, get rid of greed. Because someone learns how to game the system, don't they? To manipulate the system for their own selfish interest, to manipulate policies, to essentially take from others and get more from myself. That's a big problem in our nation, isn't it? Lots of people, lots of giant corporations have learned how to game the political system to the detriment of other people. But ultimately, the solution isn't a political solution. It's the gospel-changing hearts, isn't it? Can you imagine, like, if, if every follower of Jesus in our community began to live this way, began to think of their life like, I'm not just working hard so that I can upgrade my, my vehicle and get a new boat, but I'm working hard so that I'll have a lot of extra to share with those in need. How transformative would that be? Voluntary generosity, it's the biblical worldview, and it leads to abundance. It leads to doing what I do for the glory of God. It leads to a heart that's ready to share. So Paul says, "Don't stop stealing. Change the way you think about this. Work hard, not just for yourself. And then he goes on in verse 29. He says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So this word unwholesome unwho- in the Greek, it literally is, uh, can be used for spoiled fish. Somebody say ew, right? Spoiled fish, rotten fruit. But then there's another interesting usage of stones that crumble. Here's here's the big idea. Words that tear down, that produce death instead of life. And Paul says, get rid of that. Don't let that come out of your mouth. I heard this phrase a while ago. It stuck with me. Words create worlds. What, What worlds are your words creating around you? See, the idea behind benefit in the Greek is literally giving grace to others. And so there's three questions. Before, like, if you pause and want to put this into action in your life, which you're a follower of Jesus, you need to do. If not, well, you can do what you want. But a follower of Jesus, you need to pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. And here's a question to ask. Is it true? Is this true? That's a very important question to ask. But the second one is equally important. Is this kind? Because there's sometimes you got something true to say, but it ain't kind. And you would best keep your big mouth shut. Is it true? Is it kind? The third one, is it helpful? Is this actually going to help anybody? I think your grandma probably told you, if you don't have any good thing good to say, don't say anything at all. Some of this isn't joking, Unwholesome talk often comes out in joking. Are you really good at humor at others' expense? Humor that actually ends up cutting down. I'm not saying there's not a good, like a good place for good-natured ribbing. That's, that's fun. But oftentimes, there's an element of truth in a joke that cuts. Watch the words that come out. Watch your nicknames. Do you tend to nickname those you're, you're carrying bitterness toward in a way that puts them down? That's a really good indication you have bitterness in your heart you're carrying. When you have cutting names for people that you really don't like. Do your words poison people against relationship with others? That's gossip, slander. When you start to pre-poison the relationships with others, drive a wedge between others. How about online? So he says, I want you to remove... Take unwholesome talk. Don't let it come out of your eye. Think when you open your mouth, think how is this going to benefit and build up other people. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And here's the truth. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit, God's spirit dwells within you as a seal or a guarantee that you are saved, that you are a forgiven child of God, destined the day of redemption to spend eternity with him, to be made new. And he says, I want you to live like that now. And see, here's the thing. It's possible as a believer to live in a way that delights the heart of God, but it's also possible to live in a way that grieves the heart of God, that grieves the very Holy Spirit who indwells you. And remember, the context of this whole passage is in how we do relationships with one another. And I think that that ultimately, when you think about what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's the thing. What's the second one? It's how that works itself out. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. See, we think of loving God oftentimes as like bringing the right sacrifice or even around generosity of just giving the right amount or doing something. It's really a heart of loving others is how you express and work out your your love for God. That's why Paul says... Like, this thing works itself out in faith, expressing itself in love. That's kind of what it's all about as a follower of Jesus. And, and here's the thought behind this, I think, when it comes to the heart of God. How you treat God's kids matters a lot. See, how you treat my kids, actually, as a father, and I'm sure you can feel this if you're a parent, you, you could be really, really nice to me, but if you're a jerk to my kids, we got a problem, Right? And I think God sees it the same way because you're sitting right next to a whole lot of his other kids. You're not an only child. so I, know, I think that's an important point. Some of you need to get that through your mind. Like he has other kids. He loves them too. How you treat his other kids really, really matters. And here's the thing. There's a motivation. Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. And I think it goes two ways. One is love expresses itself in a desire to please our Savior in the way we live, right? And the other side is the way we live expresses where our heart's really at in our love for Jesus. Not that we don't blow it. We we come around and ask for forgiveness, right? He's faithful and just. He forgives. But as a pattern of our life It's expressed out of love and gratitude to him. And here's the thing. Until you learn to be motivated by love for Jesus, you will just try to live by religion, by earning his favor, and you will fail. The true motivation of life is love, and and it's in this verse. God, I just want to please you, that it would break my heart to think I'm breaking the heart of God. That I understand how much you loved me first and what you did for me first. And so I want to I live my life as a grateful response to that. Out of love. That's the motivation. He goes on. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. He starts out with bitterness, and then there's... F- Five other words that go right along with bitterness and often flow out of bitterness. And Hebrews 12 talks about a bitter root growing up. And here's the thing about bitterness that in unforgiveness that you begin begin harboring in your hearts, it grows roots and they go down deep. And before you know it, it springs up something ugly. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to pull out. I think that's why Paul said, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Like, take care of it quickly. Um, our, a few of my neighbors in and, and, uh, and our house, we share this like little pump house, kind of shared irrigation system. And uh, there's a section that's easy to see of the weeds, and then there's a section between the pump house and the ditch. And this year, we kind of neglected the weeds. <laughs> and yesterday, I kid you not, uh, we had to go out and clean the inlet. I had to cut. I was cutting weeds. I had to bring a limb lopper. These things had grown so big. I mean, it's taller than me. And and struggling just to cut these things out. And bitterness is like that in your heart. When it's allowed to grow, pretty soon it goes out of control. So he gives us these five words, rage, anger, brawling, when bitterness explodes out on others slander, when we gossip, cut down, or seek to destroy others' reputations, often seated in this anger, unforgiveness, and bitterness, and malice. And I had to look up malice. It's not a word we use frequently in everyday language, but it encapsulates the hostility that the other words actually describe. It's the intention or the desire to do ill, ill will, It's a wrongful intention. It's that part of your imagination that starts, because of the bitterness in your heart, starts imagining how you can get back or cause pain to another person because of what they've done to you. Paul says, these things have no place in the life of the heart of a follower of Jesus. Get rid of them. See, there's two options regarding those who have wronged you in life. Bitterness or forgiveness. Those are really your two only options because even if you say i don't care you haven't dealt with the issue and it comes back and it grows bigger and so you have to root bitterness and unforgiveness out of your heart and now paul gets to the heart of this verse and i love this next verse it's one of the most repeated verse Verses in our house growing up, raising kids, if you're a parent, you should write this one down and, and often repeat it to your kids because it's so powerful. Such a powerful description of how our lives are to be lived in the household, but beyond that to our relationships with one another that go beyond our family. Verse 32, he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate. Kindness. I think we oftentimes don't think of it. This is one of, the, one of the virtues held up for a follower of Jesus over and over. I know in our valley, there's a kindness campaign. Like, how would it change just if we had the heart to be kind to other people? First, compassion. That's recognizing what we talked about at the beginning of this chapter, which is, he says, bear with one another in love or literally put up with one another. How many of you, you know, a lot of times you're the one somebody has to put up with. And compassion for others is that grace that recognizes you're a sinner too. And I'm going to have compassion. I'm going to have grace on you. I'm going to be kind and compassionate to you. I'm going to forgive just as Jesus did. You know what I love about this, this command to be kind, it's active, isn't it? Now, you read, just read this, and for some of you, maybe it just sounds like one of those, like, fluffy sort of platitude verses, you know, be kind and goodbye. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is really hard to do, which is probably why you're not doing it. Be kind to each other. This is an action. It's the opposite of doing what you feel in many situations. N.T. Wright, a scholar, says this, We should regard our moods and the speech which flows from them as we might a strong but willful horse, which needs to be reminded frequently of the direction we're supposed to be going in. Anybody ride a horse? Whoa, boy, right? Go this way. I think that was, that's a great quote because our moods, what we want, it's going to lead us in the opposite direction from kindness and compassion, isn't it? Every time, almost. This is choosing the kind of actions by will, making a conscious choice, choosing the kinds of actions in relationship to each other that will delight the heart of our Father God, instead of grief, his heart. If you're a parent, you know this because there's sometimes your kids just come in and do something like unexpectedly kind towards the other sibling. You're like, oh, my goodness. And it it delights your heart. We had one of those this week. I was like, wow. It delights your heart as a parent. If you want to understand this, just think about what a big deal Jesus makes about how we treat each other in the Bible. One of the things he says, he says, tell you what, when it comes to relating to each other, if you are at the very altar – In Judaism, the highest, holiest moment, you're at the very altar offering your sacrifice to God. And you remember your brother has something against you. You did something. Leave the altar, at which every Jewish person listening would be like, what? Yeah, it's that important. Leave the altar. Go make it right with your brother and sister and then come back. Then offer your sacrifice to God. It's that important to Jesus. Think about what a big deal Jesus makes about forgiveness in the scriptures, in the in the Lord's prayer. The prayer Jesus taught us to pray. One of the lines is what? And forgive us our debts or trespasses as we forgive those. We forgive our debtors or those that have sinned against us. And he goes on to say, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. That's sobering, isn't it? That's how big of a deal Jesus makes about this. Now, don't, don't get, get in your head that forgiveness is a work that you do in order to earn your salvation. I think what's being expressed here is the First John one nine thing that He's faithful and just to to cleanse us of our sins. There's an ongoing renewal and cleansing and forgiveness that um, that creates this renewal and closeness with God. And when you don't forgive, it drives a wedge between you and God, and you lose a close relationship with Him. It's, it's like. When you stiff-arm others and you refuse to forgive, it's like you're stiff-arming God. That's the heart behind this. So forgiveness is essential. But I think for many, you don't, they, they don't really understand what forgiveness is. See, forgiveness, um, I'm, I want to start by just sharing a few things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not denial of a sin that occurred or pretending it wasn't a big deal. Some of you, you're carrying some really large hurts. And, and it's not pretending that that wasn't a big deal or didn't wound you. It's not enabling an ongoing sin or a dangerous situation such as abuse. That's not forgiveness. Just overlooking something or enabling it. Forgi- but, however, forgiveness is not dependent on someone else genuinely apologizing to you. In fact, it often has much less to do with the other person and much more to do with God. Regardless of whether or not the other person ever for, asks for forgiveness and, and repents, it is good for you. It's good for your heart, your soul. It's not a refusal to seek justice. In fact, sometimes legal action has to be pursued for the safety of oneself or other people. You can forgive while simultaneously seeking judgment or justice in an area, but that doesn't mean it's revenge. We'll see that in a minute. Forgiveness doesn't equal forgetting. Some of you have heard that forgive and forget. man, in so many situations that's completely unrealistic, isn't it? when God says he is he doesn't remember our sins anymore. It's not like God has amnesia. What he, what he means is that he chooses not to b- pull them up and use them against us. Doesn't mean it it never happened. It means it's not held against you. And forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation or trust. Both of those require an action from the other person, like repentance. A process of rebuilding trust. Trust is earned, right? Forgiveness is given. Trust is earned. They take time and definitive steps. So forgiveness isn't those things. What is forgiveness? It's releasing an emotional debt. Releasing the emotional right to make someone else suffer and pay for what they did. It's choosing... Consciously to release the bitterness in your heart towards the offender, to root it up and let it go. It's it's actually releasing the other person's control over you. As long as you harbor unforgiveness in your in your heart and your mind, it's like somebody living rent-free in your head. Some of you, you got squatters and they've been there for years, and you need to get rid of them. You do that through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift. It brings emotional and mental freedom in your life. It allows you to move forward and find healing from the pain. It allows you to be present and available to the relationships in your life that matter most. Forgiveness is deciding not to seek revenge. You leave ultimate justice to God. That's his his business. You're not going to seek revenge getting someone back. Forgiveness is actually coming to a place where you can end up praying for good for your offender, for them to turn and repent and come to God and for God to bring good things into their life. You know, Stephen, the first martyr in the church, as they're stoning him, he models this. um, They're throwing rocks at him. He's, He's almost to the point of death, and he cries out, copying his Savior, Jesus, Father, forgive him. You know who was standing there when he cried that? When he cried out that, the Apostle Paul that wrote this. See, forgiveness is a decision and a process. Man, sometimes it's really difficult, and there's some intense emotions. Sometimes you're going to need a counselor to help you work through some of these things. Sometimes there's an action that has to be taken. You have to meet, or you have to meet with someone with a third party, or maybe you write a letter. Maybe you never send a letter. You burn it. But it was just a symbol of releasing something. You express your feelings the way you've been hurt, and then you express release and forgiveness to someone. It begins with a decision, and sometimes it can take a long time because it's also a process. It starts with a decision, but often there's an ongoing process. When stuff comes back up, you release it. You release it. In fact, a great little thing to do as a physical symbol when you're struggling, when something comes to your mind, is to literally hold your fist clenched, because that's what bitterness and unforgiveness is like, holding on to something and then saying, I forgive them, and actually physically opening your hands as a sign of what you're doing in your heart. When it comes back up, you do it again. Somebody, a counselor after service told me this great thing. I was was great. I'm like, I'm going to steal that. She said oftentimes she she uses, Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7, And oftentimes for human beings, it's not that somebody offends you. It's that it comes back up in your heart that many times. And every time it does, you have to forgive it, right? It tends to come back up. So how do you move to forgiveness? The only way to genuinely go from bitterness to forgiveness, I think, is to understand the heart of the gospel. I'm going to pick up the first two verses of chapter 5, because in the Greek it goes right on to it although we have a chapter break, it says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You forgive and you love because that's what your Savior did for you. Because he loved, he gave himself for you. You follow his example man, if anybody understood this, it was, it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, as, as he sees what he used to be persecuting the followers of Jesus, presiding over the death of Stephen, breathing out murderous threats. And he has a recognition about what Jesus did for him. And Timothy he says, hey, even though I was once a blasphemer and a violent man, I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You've been given a free gift. Have you ever stopped to think of all you've been forgiven of? The times you've intentionally or unintentionally hurt others, often over and over again. The thoughts and the intentions of your heart, things that only God knows about in your life. Things that you know you should have done, but you didn't do. How many of those stacked up over the days, the months, the years? And we're told that the the wages of sin is death, that the eternal that there's an eternal separation from a holy God that is the just consequence for sin. And yet, for so many of you, you've received the free gift. You've received his forgiveness. He gave that to you, he gave himself for you. He stood in as the payment for your sin, that you could have life eternally with him. That's the gospel. So we don't do this out of some, like, generosity of our hearts as human beings. We do this because he first loved us, and his spirit in us enables us to move on. That's why understanding the first three chapters of Ephesians, and if you're just joining us in this series, go back and read them because it's critical. Understanding how much you've been forgiven, what he's done for you, is so important to actually living the way he calls us. To live, I'm going to invite Winston up. We're going to close in a song. And for a takeaway today, I just, I just want to encourage you to take this verse, one of, like I said, the most repeated verse in our household, and ponder it. Maybe with your family, memorize it together. Because it's something we all need to keep top of mind. Would you, would you read this with me once out loud? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In this passage, Paul says, Hey, pay attention to your words, they create worlds, use them to build, not to destroy. Pay attention to your hands and to your motives. Are you living a life not just for yourself, but so that you can create more than you need to be generous and share? Get rid of your anger quickly. Root out bitterness before it grows out of control. Your life belongs to God. His spirit dwells in you. So live in a way that delights his heart instead of grieving his heart. Treat others with kindness as he has treated you. Forgive and love. Would you stand? Let me just ask you, who came to mind while I've been speaking? Is something maybe a person in your life that there's, got, there's some work God needs to do on your heart? Is there a relationship in your life you've written off and said, I don't care anymore? If that's the case, I, you're probably feeling a, a tension in your heart right now. And I believe that's probably the very area where God most wants to work and bring freedom to your life. So I invite you as you sing this song, some of you want to sing, some of you just might need to just sit down and pray a little or stand and pray. The song's Oh, Come to the Altar. And it talks about how we embrace the forgiveness of our God. And out of that then, we can offer forgiveness and kindness to those around us. And as we sing it, I want to challenge you to do business with God. Allow him to work in your heart. Some of you, you need to pray a prayer of forgiveness right now and release that. we just bow our heads and close our eyes. Uh, If there's anyone in the room that you feel God just tugging on your heart, drawing you, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that forgiveness that was bought for you. And you can do that by, by praying a simple prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. Would you please forgive me? Would you give me life eternal and life now in abundance Help me live my life for you out of gratefulness for what you've done. Lord, for all my other friends here, would you give us all the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Thank you for forgiving us. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.